Just sneak forward uh, and grab one. There's some questions for you to answer uh, on those uh, sheets. Uh, so if you haven't got one and you want one, then uh, Paul is there. You can come and get one. Psalm 76. On the 11th of August 1999, uh, it was uh, a special day in Devon and Cornwall. I don't know if it was a special day up here in the north. Um, when I was a child down there, I only really had focus on Devon and Cornwall. They're, up here, there'd be dragons. I never knew what was going on. Uh, but on the 11th of August, there was a total eclipse of the sun. And in Devon and Cornwall, you could see uh, this total eclipse. And it was a big deal because the next total eclipse of the sun, which also is seen in Devon and Cornwall, is not till the 23rd of September in 2090. So uh, most of the people that saw the eclipse on that day won't even be around on the next one. So it was a big deal. And we got time off uh, school and we could go up onto Dartmoor and we could go and watch this eclipse of the sun. But when I say watch... We didn't really watch it very, uh, well, we watched it very, very carefully. We were warned before we went, don't look at the sun, which was strange because as a child, I thought, well, we're supposed to be watching the eclipse. How can we not watch it? But they gave us all uh, special sunglasses that enabled us to see, but they told us we mustn't look until the the sun is partially over, uh, the moon is partially over the sun and all those kind of things. We had to be very careful as we watched this eclipse. I'm telling you this because this psalm is about fearing God. And often we're told, well, fearing God doesn't really mean that we're scared of God. But that's only partly true. Because like the sun, we do need to be very careful with God. There's a sense, and it's true, that we have a relationship with God... And I enjoy basking in the warmth of the sun. It doesn't happen all that often here, does it? I enjoy being in the light of the sun during the day. But we respect the power of the sun. Just like when the solar eclipse happened, we had to wear glasses. We had to have that measure of protection. We don't mess around with God. Even as his people, we don't treat God lightly. And fearing God is a reverential regard and an awe from recognizing who he is. It's an awe of God when we recognize who it is. When we recognize what the sun is, we don't just stare at it because it will blind us. And fearing God means we treat him carefully. It prevents us from taking him for granted. It calls us to obey him because we see him as as glorious and holy and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We treat him as God Almighty, not God Almighty. Because God is in a relationship with us, but he still hates sin. And we are still not perfect. And we have to have a healthy fear of God. But this isn't a negative thing at all. In fact, it's a, a positive thing because it's amazing that we can even gaze at God in any way. And to fear God is a real blessing because it's how God ought to be treated. And Psalm 76 teaches us to fear God and it tells us why. And at the end it tells us how. And there's an irony which goes through this psalm and it's throughout scripture that those who don't fear God will be terrified. 
They will fear God. They will be terrified of God. But those that do fear God now, one day, will see him in his glory face to face and will be like him. There won't be any terror for the believer in glory because we will be like God. We will be face to face with him. So in Psalm 76, we see that it is good to fear God. It is good to fear God. Let's read uh, this psalm together. It begins uh, with these performance notes again. It's for the, the director of music. If you remember last Sunday evening, and we looked at Psalm 75, the director of music was one that uh, led uh, the praise in the tabernacle or the temple, and it was in his uh, specific song list that he led. It was with stringed instruments. It's a psalm of Asaph, and it's a song. So they would, they would sing it together as God's people. God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, his name is great. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing swords, the shields and the swords and the weapons of war. You are radiant with light, more majestic than the mountains, rich with game. The valiant lie plundered, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. It is you who are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. When you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Well, Asaph gives uh, two big reasons here why we should fear God. And the first reason he gives is that we fear God because he is the great deliverer. And this deliverance, he's the great deliverer for his, his people. And if you look at verse 1, we see that in, in, to his people, God is renowned and his name is great. So Judah and Israel are describing here the people of God. And his, his name is renowned, his name is great among his people. In order to understand this, you only have to see uh, this last week, the Olympians come home from the Olympic Games. They all have names, and some of the names are famous now for us. The names of Max Whitlock, the gymnast, the Brownlee brothers, Jessica Ennis Hill. These names to us in our country are held in high regard. We think of their names, when we, so when we hear their names, we think of the, the great things they did at the Olympics. And there's lots of names for Great Britain to think of. We came second in the medal table. There's loads of great names that in our country now are held in high regard because of what they have done in the Olympic Games. I was reading on the the news uh, that if you go to France, those names are not held in such high regard. If you go to Australia, they hate those names because they're really annoyed that Great Britain has done so well in the Olympic Games. And you can tell they're annoyed because they're throwing all sorts of horrible questions at us on how, how did they do so well at the Olympic Games. It's just sour grapes, isn't it? But in those countries, the names are not held in high regard. Now, God can't be compared, of course, to any Olympian. 
but his name among his people conjures up images of his greatness and the great things he has done to deliver his people. But to those who are his enemies, those not his people, his name is not in high regard. His name is not renowned. And oftentimes his name is hated. And so we pray, hallowed be thy name. We pray that others would hold the name of God in high regard. And of course, with the Olympians, we think of the great Olympic feats that they have done. But with God, we think of the great deliverance he has given us as his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. And his people here in Psalm 76 are thinking back to great deliverances of their past. And in verse 2, we read his tent is in Salem. This is where God dwells. His dwelling place is in Zion. This great God, this great deliverer, his tent is in Salem. Now, the word tent here, it is not a helpful word for us. Uh, The word in Hebrew is different to the, the tent we think of as in the tabernacle. Or some of you may be thinking of some flimsy piece of canvas that you sleep under and hope it doesn't rain. That's not what this word means. Uh, to understand what it means, uh, you can turn to Jeremiah 25 and verse 38. I'll read you the verse so you don't need to turn there. But in this uh, uh, verse, the same word used for tent here is used Uh, In this verse, it says in verse 38 of Jeremiah 25, Like a lion, he will leave his lair, and their land will become desolate. Like a lion, he will leave his lair. And lair is the same word here translated tent, and that's really what this word means. It means his lair is in Salem. Lair is in a lion. So like a lion is in his lair, God is in Salem. And what does Salem mean? Salem is the place of peace. Salem means place of peace. Well, it seems strange, doesn't it, that in this place of peace, there's a lion, a lion's lair. He's dwelling in a place of peace. And his dwelling place, in verse 2, is in Zion. Zion is, is, is Jerusalem, or it's the temple. The place where God dwells is called Zion. And Zion is often attacked. And we read in Isaiah 37 of a time when King Sennacherib came to attack Zion, attack the dwelling place of God, where the people of God were. And what happened? King Sennacherib was destroyed. Look at verse 3. There, in, in Zion, he broke the flashing, sword, the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, And the weapons of war, they were all broken by God. And the picture is that these attackers are coming up to the dwelling place of God. They're coming to his lair. They're firing arrows. They're flashing, uh, bearing their swords. They've got their shields. But this lion doesn't even move. He's in his lair, not moving, and he breaks every arrow that comes. Every sword that is born. Every shield that is uh, shown the lion destroys. He breaks it. And as we come to the New Testament, where is the dwelling place of God? The dwelling place of God is is Jesus, and Jesus has ascended, and God comes and dwells in his people. So his people have a lion in them. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus Christ, dwelling within us. We are the lair of God. 
there is this lion. And the enemy comes. And he has weapons. They're not arrows and shields and swords. Sometimes in many places, as Kevin was praying earlier, Christians have to face those things. But most of us here in this congregation don't face swords and shields and arrows. But we do face the enemy of of evil thoughts, of unbelief and of doubt, of love, of sin, of apathy towards the things of God and just not caring about these things. There are trials in our faith. And and the enemy comes, Satan comes with these weapons and he knocks at our door. He throws these grenades within us. Well, what do we do? Well, I remember when I was a teenager and I had a paper round and I would go and deliver papers and there was a couple of houses that had dogs. There were probably more than a couple of houses that had dogs, but there were a couple of houses that had vicious dogs. And you know what, it, you know what I'm going to say. You, 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 you walk up to the door with the newspaper and you, you want to put it through the door. And you put it through the door and then rah, the dog growls and you move your hand away. And I was terrified, but I, I, I learned where these houses were and I was very careful as I went up because the dog was there. But if a, I imagine if a burglar went to that house, they don't need an alarm because they've got this dog. But here in this psalm, the Bible teaches us we have a lion, a lion that's defending us. So when Satan comes to your door, he should come with trepidation because he's knocking at the door where there's a lion. And when he's going to deliver his weapon, he's knocking. And he's going to give the weapon to you. What do we do? Well, often we go and answer it ourselves and we try and fight with a feather duster. He's there with his weapons and here we are. We're going to fight him with, well, I must try harder. Or I'll have a stiff upper lip. Or I must do more. What should we do when Satan comes knocking? We send the lion. We send the lion and he wins every time. He breaks those weapons. He breaks those swords. He breaks those arrows. He breaks those shields. Those evil thoughts, he ruins. That love of sin, he takes. That fiery trial, he brings you through. When Satan knocks, send the lion. Don't lock him away in the front room and go and answer yourself. I mean, it's stupid when you think of it, isn't it? If, you were, if, you, if someone was coming around your house and you saw them with all these weapons, they were belted up with grenades and guns and swords and you know they were coming for you and you had a lion in the room, how stupid would you be to come and answer it yourself? And yet we do that all the time. Well, how do we send the lion? Because I'm assuming none of you literally have one in your front room. Well, we engage, don't we, with our Bibles. We open up. This is, this is the, the, the roar of the lion is contained in here. And we open it up and we show it to the enemy and say, no, this is true. We seek God's face. We gaze at him, not glancing. We, we gaze at him. We meditate on the things of God. We pray to him. We, we engage with our brothers and sisters. We, it's just spiritual disciplines, isn't it? But ultimately, there will be a day when those knocks will stop. And the deliverance will be complete when the lion of the tribe of Judah returns for his people. And he takes them home, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no weapons. Those weapons will be completely broken. And we will be with our Lord forevermore. Hallelujah.
We look forward to that day. But until that day, this fearsome lion defends us and delivers us. And we fear him. We revere his name because he is our great deliverer. And you know, I'd rather, much rather, have the lion for me than against me. And that's the flip side within this psalm. You see, his people fear God because he is their great deliverer, but his enemies, they should fear God because he is the rising judge. And I say rising judge referring to verse 9. In verse 9, it says, When you, God, rose up to judge. And God is a judge who is rising up to judge. Now today, God is, is judging. He's, he judged Sennacherib. He judges people in the world today. But we look forward to a final judgment. And in the sense that that is coming, God is rising. A judge in a court rises up when he's going to give sentence. When he's going to tell people what it is that's going to happen to them. And God is rising because he's going to judge. How do we know God will judge? Well, because we've been given shadows through the Old Testament, through the New Testament of, of what God has done in the past. And just like verse 1 proclaims the greatness of God and, and why we should fear him, and verses 2 and 3 explain why, verse 4 proclaims the greatness of God, and then the verses following explain why we should fear him. So verse 4 says, You are radiant with light, more majestic than mountains rich with game. The mountains rich with game are sometimes translated mountains rich with prey. And what it was were mountains that had game in them, animals that would be hunted by lions, as it happens. So in verse 2, we have this lair for the lion. But here, in the mountains, there are also lions that are hunting game. But God, our lion, is more majestic than those mountains rich with game. Our God is radiant with light. In other words, he is greater than all of our enemies. Our God is greater than all others. He is the king of kings. He is more majestic than all the, the, the lions of earth that prowl around and think that they are king. God is king. God is greater. And we can't say with certainty that this does talk of the battle with Sennacherib. But the battle with Sennacherib that was read in Isaiah 37, at the very least, gives a good illustration of what's going on here. Look at verses 5 and 6. The valiant lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. No one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. So when Hezekiah prayed to God, when he had this enemy at his gates, he prayed and God came and defeated, killed all those people in his army and Sennacherib fled. So the valiant lied plundered. And it was when they were asleep. So those that sleep, they slept their last sleep. Those warriors that were going to destroy Israel couldn't even lift their hands because they were dead. God fights for his enemy by passing judgment. And the the horse and the chariot there, the horse and the chariot uh, at this time were were quite new weapons. The horse wasn't new, but the, the chariot was. And they were feared by Israel. 
They were scared of these things, but at the rebuke of God, those things just lie still. Those enemy weapons are totally destroyed. And then we come to verse 7, and we see because of, the, because of what's just been said, it's true. It is you alone who are to be feared. You know, not Sennacherib, not his God, Nisroch, but God alone. Only God can be feared. None of the enemies need to be feared. Only God. And the question that must be asked from this passage is, who do you fear? Who or what gets your respect? What are you in, in awe of? And it can be many things. Is it something to do with yourself? Do you fear aging? Not having a partner? Financial insecurity? Unhappiness? Because those things we, we, people fear, and when they fear them, really they're in awe of them, and their whole life goal is to stop those thing ha- things happening. Even though you can't, because everybody will age. 50% of those of us that are married will most likely not have a partner one day. And those that don't have a partner may not have a partner. All of us may face financial insecurity. We, we, we live in an uncertain age. All of us at some point won't be happy. But our life goal as God's people isn't just to stop those things happening. Because we fear God. He is the one we worship. Perhaps you, you fear other people. You fear their approval or dis- fear rather their disapproval. And so your whole life is aimed at making other people happy or making other people laugh or, or all those kind of things. Perhaps you fear an object or a possession. You're in awe of those things that you have. But whatever it is that you fear, that's what you focus on and that is what you worship. And that's the key here. You worship that and not God. What we fear, what we are in awe of, what we respect the most is what we worship. And we bow down to it. And we do so at the expense of fearing God. And this psalm is here to tell us, no, fear God. You alone are to be feared. You alone. And the consequences of not fearing God go further than just the Assyrians in Isaiah 37. It applies to us all. Because look at the next part of verse 7. Who can stand before you when you are angry? No earthly king, no angel who rebelled against God can stand before him. No person throughout all of history can stand before God when he is angry. The anger of God comes on those who do not fear him. But that anger was poured on Jesus. For those that believe and follow Jesus Christ and fear him, all that anger of God against sin, which by the way, uh, we've, I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again, the anger of God is not an uncontrolled temper. It is a righteous hatred of all evil that he must stand against if he is holy. And all of that anger was poured on Jesus Christ the wrath of God, so that we are able to stand before him because the price has been paid. But if we do not fear God and put our trust in Jesus Christ, no one will stand when he is angry. 
And there's no adequate illustration to describe someone trying to stand before God. You know, Sennacherib tried to stand off. God just destroyed him. I was thinking of, of like an ant and an elephant, but it doesn't even, there's no comparison. God is incomparable. And verses 8 and 9 show what happens for those that do not fear God. This is what happens for those who try to stand. From heaven you pronounce judgment. And the land feared and was quiet when you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Verses 8 and 9 move uh, from Zion in Jerusalem to heaven itself. And I think we see here in this, these uh, two verses, 8 and 9, not just God's judgment at a specific time in the past, but over all of history. Who in all of history can stand before God? No one can. And God from heaven judges, and when he judges, every mouth is silent. Everyone fears. There's no appeal. There's no, uh, I'm, I'm not that bad. There's no, you won't even be able to say anything because God speaks. And he judges from heaven. And everyone will be silent. And when we, come, we think of the final judgment, when God judges all the world for sin, nobody will stand. And it says there in verse 9, he rises to judge from his throne. But notice in verse 9, why? Why is he judging to save all the afflicted of the land? I mean, that's what happened, wasn't it, in Isaiah 37? God judged Assyria to save Israel. And in the final judgment, we see the same thing. Let me uh, explain how that works. When we talk about salvation in the Bible, salvation uh, is in three different parts. So it's past, present, and future. So, so we have been saved. That's over here. We have been saved. So I've been forgiven of my sin, and I have a place in God's kingdom. That's done. But right now, the Bible describes me as being saved. That means that God is making me holy, making me more like Jesus. But the Bible also has verses which says, we will be saved in the future. So that doesn't mean that I'm not, I'm not saved, I'm not a Christian, because that's been done. It doesn't mean that God isn't making me holy because he is, but what it means is as well, the final culmination of my salvation is when I am in glory with God in heaven. I will be saved. That's what that means. So what we're saying here is that God judges for the afflicted. That means that the final judgment must take place in order for God to be able to make that new heaven and earth that his people will go to. So that means that where God is, there could be no sin. There could be nothing unclean or unholy where God dwells. And so he must judge. And when he does that, his people are able to be with him in the new heaven and earth. So he judges for the afflicted. The, uh, some versions use the word meek, and it's talking of the people of God. Afflicted is talking of the people of God. Now, if you are an enemy of God, if you do not fear God, well, this should give you cause, shouldn't it, to fear God? And how can you read this and see 
how God is going to work and not fear God. So we fear God because he's our great deliverer and we fear God because he is the rising judge. And this judgment is coming your way if you do not fear God. And so the question uh, to end this psalm with in the last few verses is, is how? What do, how do I fear God? What, what does fear God, fearing God look like? Well, verses 10 to 12 show us that it, we, we fear God through submission to his sovereign rule. And it begins in verse 10 by telling us that God is a sovereign ruler. Verse 10 says, Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Now this verse is very difficult uh, to, uh, for translators. Uh, the NIV, you'll notice if you have one, uh, at the bottom, at the end of the psalm, has uh, what's called uh, a text note. So if you have an NIV, uh, look at the text note and I'll, I'll just read it to you. So verse 10 can either read what we've just read or it says, Surely the wrath of mankind brings you praise and with the remainder of wrath you arm yourself. Now this alternative text note is what most uh, Bible translations have as the translation. I don't know why there are two. Uh, Translators have found this difficult. But let me just read you uh, what um, most versions give us the translation. Most versions say this, and I'll explain why this is important in a moment. Most versions say, The wrath of mankind brings you praise... And the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Let me read you that again. The wrath of mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. So it's a kind of a mixture of the two. Now the reason that is important is this, because of what it means. It means that God is a sovereign God that is sovereign even over the evil actions of his enemies. And that means that even the evil that is done brings God praise. He uses it for good to bring him praise. Now let's use an example of these Assyrians. The Assyrians come and they attack the people of God. They have wiped out nations before them. They are evil. King Sennacherib was an evil king. You can go to the British Museum and look at the Assyrian exhibits and you'll see that these were not nice people. But here in the psalm, why do the children of God praise him? Because he's delivered them from Assyria. So even this evil that Assyria has done was used to praise God because God delivered his people. Let me give you one more example because this is most clearly seen on the cross. In Acts chapter 4 and verses 27 and 28, the people of God are praying. And this is what they say. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So Pontius Pilate and Herod and the the Pharisees were evil. They wanted to murder Jesus. They did murder Jesus. It was an evil act. But when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies to pay for our sin 
And don't we praise God for the cross? The wrath of mankind brings you praise. And it's most clearly seen on the cross of Christ that he used the evil intent of mankind to bring him praise. Now, there is an awful lot in the, just those, uh, that description with those examples. That is another sermon. But hopefully you can see this truth, that God is so in control that even the evil that man intends is used for his glory. And even can be used to bring salvation and is used in terms of the cross to bring salvation to all who would believe. But let's make this far more simpler than even that. God is glorified when our enemy is defeated. God is glorified when our enemy is defeated. So whenever we resist temptation, that temptation has been used to bring God praise. Whenever someone is converted and has turned away from uh, following after the enemy to following Jesus Christ, it brings God praise because the enemy is defeated. When God brings healing, it brings him praise. When God defeats oppressors, it brings him praise. Even the wrath of mankind brings you praise. And it says, and the, the, the survivors of wrath are restrained. That means the survivors are like those Assyrians who survived the angel of death and went home. They are allowed to go home, but they are restrained. They are not allowed to attack the people of God. And God holds back how evil people can be. And even the evil that mankind produces is only what God permits to happen. I mean, well, we can't imagine how evil would the world be were it not for God restraining and holding back. So that verse 10 teaches us that God is the sovereign ruler, so in control that he's even in control of evil acts of mankind. Now, now the Bible also teaches that he doesn't, um, he's not responsible for those evil acts. the, The Bible teaches that mankind is responsible for the evil that they do. But God isn't out of control. If you want to talk about this over coffee, that that would be a good time uh, to chat about it with your neighbor. They might scratch their head and think, what on earth is he talking about? But, you know, come and speak to me if you don't understand. But the truth is God is in control and God is the sovereign ruler. And so what does a response look like? Well, verses 11 and 12. What does fear look like? Verse 11, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. Uh, that, that word there, one to be feared, that's the name of God. It's the, the feared one. It's the a, it's a, it's a name of God. And so the first thing is to submit to his rule. If God is the sovereign ruler, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the, the very first thing we need to do is submit to him as our king. And it says make vows to God. Now this isn't, doesn't mean that we make rash vows and we say, uh, you, know, d- d- you know, God, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. A bit of tit for tat. No. In Old Testament times, people did make vows in times of trouble. But here what we see is someone committing to God. And we do that, don't we? Think of songs that we sing as, as the people of God. And, uh, oh Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Jesus, I my cross have taken, left it all to follow thee. All to Jesus, I surrender. 
Those are songs of commitment, aren't they? We sing those to God. I hope from our hearts we don't just, just sing them because we're, we're trying to follow a tune. We submit to God and we say, yes, God, I surrender all to you. I, I will follow you till the end. So we make vows to God and we fulfill them. And it says, let the neighboring lands bring gifts. Gifts would bring to a king. Well, this is the king who is the one to be feared, the king feared one. And gifts were brought to kings. But what do we bring to God? Well, Romans chapter, one, chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 say we bring our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your act of worship. We worship God by bringing our whole lives, our bodies, everything to God in worship and bowing down to him and saying, you, Lord, are king, and I will follow you. If we fearing God means we submit to him. But there's another option in verse 12, and that is the option of resistance. So we fear God or we resist God. We submit or we deny. But look what happens in verse 12. Those that resist, which by the way, even God will get the glory for. I mean, people that, it's, it's amazing when you think about verse 10 again. God gets the praise and the glory even when people are resisting him because he is God. He gets all the glory. So people shaking their fist at God, telling God how much uh, they, they want to ignore him and how they're going to attack God's people and how they're going to get the victory. Even through that, God will be glorified. People have no way to stand against God. And it says in verse 12, this is what he does to them. He breaks the spirit of rulers, those princely rulers, those people who, who look happy now because everything seems to be going well, but they will fear God in the end. He will break their spirits. They will bow before King Jesus. And kings of the earth will fear him. The greatest of kings, like King Sennacherib, it happened with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the greatest king in all the earth, bowed down to God. The greatest of kings. It's like those, uh, like all the ants get together and decide which of them is the greatest that can fight the elephant. He's still not got a chance. And so as we conclude this psalm, who or what do you fear? Fear God alone. That's the call here, to fear God alone. And if it's not God alone that you are fearing, then you need, there needs to be transformation of your heart that can only come through Jesus. But I want to finish by thinking of Jesus. Psalm uh, 76 was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. But as the Old Testament does, it points forward to Jesus. The big message of Old Testament is Jesus, Jesus is coming. And so let's look at, see Jesus in this psalm. Let's be in awe of Jesus and submit to him. So Jesus is the one that's renowned. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah that's dwelling in Salem. Jesus is the one that breaks the weapons of war. Jesus is the one to whom the wrath of mankind will be turned into praise. Jesus is the one to whom we bring our gifts to. 
And Jesus is the rising judge. And to him, every knee will bow. And so let me leave you with this question. Will you bow now to Jesus? Or are you going to decide now to wait before you must bow the knee? Because standing isn't an option. No one will stand, but every knee will bow. And if you want to talk more about this, then uh, I encourage you to come and speak to me at the end or speak to one of the uh, members of the church here. We'd love to share more about what it means to follow Jesus and to fear him. But as we finish, let us sing his praise. Uh, First of all, I've mentioned this song. We're going to sing, O Jesus, I have promised. Let's commit to following Jesus. We've been told at the end of the psalm, make vows to him, let this be your song. And then at the end, we're going to worship him with the splendor of the king. And in the uh, refrain of that song, it says that he's the lion and the lamb. How great is our God. So let's stand as we respond to this word with song.